Adventures of Julie Jones and the Get Shit Done podcast. It's yours truly, Julie Jones, with another exciting episode. And I know I tell you that each and every week, but it honest to God is true. And I am so excited about today's guest because we have somewhat of a similarity in background. But when I was introduced to him, his story is absolutely amazing. And his willingness to be vulnerable about his story is going to have you on the edge of your seat. So please help me welcome, and I'm going to get this right, to our podcast, Donald Madrogan. Woo! How are you? <laughs> I am well, Julie. Yes. Skip Mondragon. Oh, yeah, Skip. That's right. We do go by Skip. And now for the Spanish speakers, it's Mondragon. But if you can't do that, that's okay, Julie. I won't hold that against you. It's that rolling R thing, right? Like I took Spanish class and I was never good with the R's. (laughs) 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 Oh my God. Well, let's let's first talk about like you, because I always love to have people share about like who they are and what makes them so unique and, you know, really what you bring to the party. And there's so much for you to share. So I want to get right into it. Well, where to start? Well, I'm the third of eight children born of two Hispanic parents of of meager means. My father came back a broken man from the Korean War. And my mother, my uh, Auntie Mary, his older sister, my older cousins tell me the man that went to war was not the man that came home. He was a broken man. And I'm convinced that he had uh, bipolar disorder and PTSD when he came home, but he was also alcoholic and he was a mean alcoholic. When he drank, he was violent. And my older sister, Roma, my older sister, she tells us we'd run and hide when my dad would come home. We did not know who was coming home. Was it the kind, gentle, fun-loving dad that would uh, horseplay with us and was a lot of fun to be around? Or was it the angry, violent dad? And when I was... Uh, About seven years old, my mother said, enough of this. We're not living like this. And she moved us 200 miles away to start a new life for us. Wow, that was a lot. I mean, did you say there were eight children and that she packed up all eight and decided, wow, that's a lot of strength. Indeed. And she went back to school to finish uh, up a degree. She had been in nursing school, but when she married my father, she had to leave nursing school because she wouldn't be, couldn't be in the nursing program and be married. And so she would commute from Trinidad, Colorado to Alamosa, Colorado, uh, leave typically either early Monday morning on the bus or late Sunday night to go back to school, come back on Friday evening and did that for about a year plus to get her degree. Uh, I thought it was two years. I can't remember now talking with my mom. It was two years, one year, but she did this. My grandmother came and stayed with us. Uh, Eight kids from a newborn to a 10 year old and grandma holding down the fort. My mom got her degree. And then she took her first teaching job on the Zuni Indian reservation in Zuni, New Mexico. And so that started our new lives. Wow. And then, so now you said your father, you know, returned from the Korean War. And I know, um, you know, you're going to get into your your military experience. So do you think in some way, shape or form that your father played an influence on you deciding to go into the military? 
or was there another reason? I, in retrospect, I, I think so. Yes, but there's other reasons too. Uh, in indeed, but uh, I didn't understand that till many many years uh, past. Even you know, looking back, I, I don't know if I understood it well as in the military until I retired. And would reflect, okay, what were uh, some of those reasons that led me to that? I thought it was other reasons, but I think in part it was my father's illness and the fact that he was not able to get the care. Uh, at that time, they didn't have the, the care really that he needed. He died as a young man in his uh, early 30s. He was 34 years old when he died. And that and I think so. Part of that was I think this idea that okay, I couldn't they couldn't help my father, but maybe I can help other soldiers. And so I I, I think that was definitely part of it. So what branch of the military? And then did you did you go in right away at eighteen? Is that what got out of high school, or did you go in no. earlier later? <laughs> <laughs> no, my father was in the army, and I went in the army uh, with on a scholarship actually and it was a health profession scholarship program with the army who they paid for medical school and then i owed them a year for a year but see the scholarship not only paid for medical school but allowed me to get married see i was in love with the beautiful a young woman by the name of sherry cooper and we wanted to get married but i wasn't getting married if i couldn't support a wife and how am I going to support a wife? How am I going to pay for medical school? But the army offered a scholarship. And with that, it came a living stipend. Eh, it was pretty meager, but with that, what I made was going to make and what she was getting with her fellowship at the University of Tulsa, uh, with her graduate fellowship combined, we could scrape by. <laughs> so we knew we could get married. And so that was the other reason I went into the army, but I went in, even though I was going to owe them four years with the intent that it was going to be a career. Wow. So talk about your career. I mean, cause you've done some remarkable things and, you know, you've retired and, um, you know, what, what was it that kept you in longer than just the four years? Because so many people go in and they come out, right. And sometimes it's injuries or other things that they decide it's not the the path for them. Yet you made the decision that it was. So what was the turning point? Well, uh, like I said, we we went in. So part of that was uh, understanding that, yes, when you make a career of it, it it's a commitment that the family makes. And you, you don't go that alone. And so that was part of it, that my wife was in this with me. And then, of course, we have five children and they go in this journey with you. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But that idea uh, that we're in this together, but being part of something bigger than yourself. And, and that's always something that appealed to me, appealed to my wife, that we're serving our nation and we're serving this bigger cause than us. And that's always been very important to us. The, the other was uh, being able to take care of soldiers, but as an internal medicine physician. So I take care of adults. I'm a specialist for adults that I would take care of retirees and in some cases their dependents, uh, spouses. So I had the opportunity to care for these individuals that had served. 
And so they might have been Vietnam vets, Korean vets, World War II vets. And so I was very privileged to care for them. And that was one of the appeals. The, the other was graduate medical education, helping to train individuals, whether that be uh, PAs uh, and then medical students and residents. And, and that was the other thing that kept me in as long as I did was that I got to help train these individuals. Wow. So how long of a career? And then what was your rank that you retired at? We spent 26 years retired as a colonel. Okay. Well, and there's so much more to your story because as part of it, um, you discovered, you know, like with your TEDx talk. So Skip is an amazing TEDx talk and we'll make sure that we have that, you know, link to your, your talk in the show notes. But when I listened to your, um, your presentation, I was, I was so engaged and so, uh, you know, drawn in by what you were sharing. And, you know, I'd love for you to go into like, you know, some of what you talked about, because we know that it's not a subject that's often talked about amongst men, let alone in the military. So if you're open to sharing, Skip, I'd love to hear. Absolutely. Something. Thank you, Julie. Well, life was good. Life was very good. We were nearing the end of our career, looking forward to uh, transitioning out of the Army. We were empty nesters. The last of our five children was in college. So we were, yay, you know, launched the kids. Uh, life was good. I was chief of the Department of Medicine at Eisenhower Army Medical Center until it wasn't. And so I began to experience uh, symptoms in June of 2013, the year before we retired uh, out of the Army. And that was in the form of insomnia, trouble sleeping, engaged a clinical psychologist that was part of the resilience program to help me with my sleep. But then uh, there were problems in my department that were going to disrupt patient care and graduate medical education, things that I couldn't have done anything about, took it on personally and began to ruminate on that. Uh, and negative thoughts, you should have seen this. What's wrong with you? You've let your department down. You've let the army down. You've let, uh, you've let the hospital down. And those thoughts began to grow louder and louder. And then my confidence began to wane started becoming indecisive and the insomnia grew, grew worse. And now my mood began to dwindle. And I'm a tough guy. It's been 37 months deployed. Well, you know, over a year and a half in combat zones themselves. I'm a national wrestling champion. I'm a tough guy. And so my modus operandi, my way of life has always been push through it. And so I'm just pushing through this. And the harder I'm pushing, the worse I'm getting. And so all these symptoms are getting worse. And then my cognition is, is getting worse. I'm having trouble remembering. What did I just read five minutes ago? Huh? Trouble remembering common drugs that, that, that we would treat patients with, uh, uh, medical syndromes, the names of these are names of people that I'm familiar with. And it's like, uh, 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 you're 
talking with somebody and trying to call that name. And you're, it's like you're flipping through these files in your brain and say, oh, where is it? Where is that? Where is that? Feeling like a fool. And so all these things were going on and the insomnia is getting worse. The mood is getting worse. The indecision, the loss of confidence. Uh, and then somatic symptoms where my body would just ache and the, the osteoarthritis and the overuse injuries from the wrestling and the training would just got worse. Um, and then even my libido, my sex drive, just be in the toilet. So you talk about kicking a guy when he's down. And it all culminated then in on April 17, 2014. Got up after terrible night's sleep. Uh, groomed, uh, dressed quickly, had my short devotions. And then I was off to uh, Eisenhower Medical Center. I always got there early. Went down to my office, unlocked the door, turned on the lights, and stepped inside. And then everything just came crashing down upon me. Yeah. I just had it. I couldn't deal with anymore anything more. I was beat down, beat up, and I was broken. I locked the door behind me. I turned off the lights. I closed the blinds, turned off my phones, and then I curled up under the desk in my office in a fetal position. And for the next four hours, I wrestled with these questions. Skip, what are you doing? Skip. How did you get here? What happened? You're a tough guy, a colonel, a national wrestling champion. You've spent time in combat zones. And over and over, I'm asking these questions. I, it, it was uh, being this participant observer. Back and forth, reviewing what's been happening, what has happened. How did I get here? And very slowly, I began to put the pieces together. All these things that had gone on, and then these symptoms that I've been having, blue mood, loss of confidence, uh, indecision, the negative thoughts, the insomnia, the loss of, of sex drive, and then it was other things, uh, social withdrawal, and, and so forth. All these things. And then finally, oh, Skip, you're depressed. Go get help. Well, and you know, and thank you for sharing because, again, like I hope people who are listening in, like you know, and um, I would love to at some point, you know, for those of you who are listeners, that these will be able to be viewed. Like you, you feel it, like, you know, like where you were at and, and even as a doctor, even knowing, like knowing what depression is, like you didn't realize that you were in it. And that's how, you know, for a lot of people um, and mental illness sometimes like has this stigma, right? And like you said, tough guy, like you've got to push through it. I think all of us at one point or another have pushed through something like I've got this, like, I know I've been there. I've got this. I can do this. And then, you know, you have that complete breakdown and you're like, well, where did this come from? And it's because of that, you know, like tough guys, like 
you know, tough guys and tough girls don't cry, right? Like you don't show what's really going on for you. And so like that turning point. So is that when you asked for help or you started seeking help or kind of talk a little bit about that journey and how that was for you and how the military looked at that as well? I crawled out from under that desk with a little flicker of hope. And then I, I went down to the primary care clinic that uh, where I was assigned and asked to get an appointment with the psychologist that was there. And they said, well, you can get one next week. So I said, all right, give me the appointment. I got back to my office, sat there for a few minutes and said, I don't want to wait till next week. Picked up the phone and called the chief of behavioral health, explained what was going on and said, Joe, can you help me out here? I said, yeah, we'll, we'll get you an appointment. That afternoon, I was seeing a clinical psychologist and she confirmed the uh, diagnosis of major depression. And then they had arranged, she said, we've arranged for you to start therapy with a, another therapist who my chief and I the pill would be a very good fit for you. So at that point, I was so broken and so depleted that it didn't matter to me what anybody thought. I knew I needed help. I knew I couldn't function any longer. I was utterly utterly uh, devastated. I just could not go on any farther. And did people around you, did they, did they notice, did they sense, did they attempt to talk to you? Or, I mean, you know, did you really feel like alone in your journey that nobody was like really, I mean, nobody ever wants to be discovered, right? But sometimes people will start to say stuff to us like, hey, you just don't seem like yourself or anything else. Were you getting any of that kind of feedback? No, I could function at work. It was difficult, but the the symptoms are insidious and and progressive, and I, I could put on a good front. Now, so nobody really noticed, of course, my wife, when things began to get real severe or became more and more concerned and, and wondering, she began to, you know, would later say, gee, I wondered where Skip's get up and go had gone. And, and so the, the confidence and the drive and so forth, everything uh, in terms of where, where is my husband? What's happened to him? Uh, the uh, So others really didn't say anything and didn't see anything. And since it was Sherry, uh, it was only Sherry and and me at home. You didn't have children at home, so there wasn't that. And, and the withdrawal, you know, I wouldn't attend other functions and that were necessary. Went to church, um, went to work. I would go to the gym, but there wasn't much else that I was doing. I, I, I did go to a Bible study, I think, weekly that I was still meeting with men, but I wasn't openly sharing. Hey, guys, I'm struggling with this. And so people were surprised when I then began to say, hey, I'm struggling with this. When I opened up to my department, for instance, and talked to my service chiefs in the department, when I went to the uh, command and opened up what was going on and said, I'm I'm getting help here. Um, Now, the only person when I began to share them with my office staff that said, I knew, I knew you were. That was my secretary. She saw the difference. 
but nobody else was able to see that apart from my secretary and my wife. So when did you start to, how long of a journey, I guess, you know, was the, um, were you able to like start to turn some things around or that you started Mm -hmm. to feel like the old skip again? It took, it took a matter of of months and there were a couple of key points in that uh, with that. So started therapy uh, within, you know, by the next week that I, I was in therapy. And so first it was cognitive behavioral therapy that I was engaged in. And that's where you're retraining your mind. Uh, really, that's what you're doing. And then my primary care physician did a thorough evaluation. Were there any associated medical causes that could be contributing? And then later started me on an antidepressant And then eventually I was seeing a psychiatrist also, and they adjusted my medications. And I still see a therapist and I still take medications uh, to keep me on this even kill. Right. Because you don't want to go back there. No, 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 (laughs) no, 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 no. (laughs) But uh, there. So we started therapy there uh, like the third week of April. Now, in June, mid-June, I'm still struggling, and my brother Chris calls, my youngest brother, I call him my alter ego, he calls very excitedly, Skip, just came out of this Bible study with Franklin Graham. Now, Franklin is the son of Billy Graham, and he was talking about the suffering of Christ, and the gist of what he shared was, if Christ suffered so brutally upon the cross for us, why, especially as Western Christians, do we think we're immune to suffering? And after Chris shared, I kept pondering this. And the verse that came to mind was what the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians, Philippians 2.13 is, Oh, that I might know him, he's referring to Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. I knew that verse. I knew it well. I prayed that verse. Oh, how many times over the course of my walk with Christ. But in the midst of my suffering, for all those months, my prayers have been, Lord, please, please deliver me from my from this darkness. I had pleaded. I had shouted. I had cried those prayers to no avail. I felt like my prayers just bounced off the ceiling. Mm. But over the course of two days, my prayer shifted from, Lord, please, please deliver me to Lord. What would you have me learn? And how might I use it to help others? And that became a major turning point. That prayer changed my outlook. Changed the course of my recovery. And changed the course of my life. Wow, that's very powerful because I was going to ask you what the catalyst was because now, you know, the the TEDx talk that you did, however, it's also the catalyst for for you supporting other men as well. So what is it now that, you know, you are called to do because of your own journey? I speak to tough guys. That's what came out of that because at that moment I knew in my heart 
because it was like God give me a kick in the pants that I was going to share my story. I didn't know how. I didn't know when. So I began to jot down what lessons I had learned and what I was learning with the intent of sharing it. And I got to do that with the staff, the entire staff at Eisenhower RE Medical Center in a morning session and an afternoon session uh, before I left uh, there to talk about my story and the lessons I had learned and to encourage people to decrease the stigma. I was well known in the hospital as a combat vet, national wrestling champion, and so I had a powerful platform with which to speak from. And, and, and so I had people come up to me afterwards and say, thank you for being so courageous. That was my story. Or that was my husband's story. Or that was my brother's story. I've been there. Uh, and so I knew it resonated. And with that, then became the genesis for my book. And many times sharing on a variety of different stages. And then ultimately the TED Talk that I did give last year. Right. And what is the name of your book? My book is called Wrestling Depression is Not for Wimps. Wow. And, you know, it's in the sharing of the stories. And that's what, um, again, just resonated so much with me is that because people feel that they're alone. And and then all that feedback that you got when people came up and said, you know, that was, you know, my story, you know, my husband's story, whosever story it was, people then realize that they're not alone. And it does take a lot of courage to share our stories. And I'm always encouraging people like you are not the only one and we feel like we're the only one. And so go out there and you don't have to get into all the nitty gritty. You don't have to get into all the details, but share you know, what has happened because it's going to make a difference in someone's life. True. I I understand that there's very few individuals that have gone through what, what I've gone through in terms of my journey with depression, our journey with depression as, as fellow sufferers that are going to stand on a stage, that are going to give a TEDx talk, that are going to write a book and share on a variety of platforms what's happened to them that are going to be this open book, if you will. But by sharing my story, I empower, that's my intent to empower those individuals struggling, one, to admit their struggle and to have the willingness to go get help. But then to have the courage to share their story, maybe one-on-one with somebody else to encourage them if they're struggling, go get help. Because you're not less than a man. You're not a wimp. You're not weak by admitting you need help, by admitting you are struggling. It's simply a function of being human. That's the reality of life. We all need help from time to time. And I love that. And I heard a, I heard something once, you know, it's not a man thing. It's not a woman thing. It's a human thing. And, you know, there's, there's all these different, oh, what's the word I want to use? Like expectations of the different sexes. Right. And it's like in letting go of those expectations, 
And again, realizing that we're all humans and it's okay for any of us to ask for help. You know, so many times, you know, we were not designed to be, as I call, lone rangers. We're designed to be in this together. And I believe that that's why at times the pandemic was so challenging for people is that they felt even more alone than maybe they originally did feel. And so out there listening in, you know, it's really important to be able to, you know, ask for help at any given time. Skip, what's the best way for people to connect with you if they're looking to, you know, have a conversation or find out more from you? What's the best way that they can do that? They can go to my website, www.transformtoughguys.com. And they can connect with me on LinkedIn. Awesome. And we'll make sure we have that all in the show notes because it's really key that when people come to this, and I know that they're going to want to reach out or at the very least, you know, see um, your your TEDx, you know, your TED Talk. Because I, again, I was so, like, I saw that and you're in, you know, full uniform and everything else. And it's just really, it's really very powerful. Very powerful. Um, so Skip, is there anything else that's on your heart? Anything else that we haven't really talked about that you still want to share with the audience? Leave a, a leave a, a lasting thought. Yes, ma'am, indeed. One is the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. If you are struggling and contemplating harming yourself, please understand you are unique. You are loved. You are needed. And you're never, ever, ever truly alone. You can dial 988. And if you're a military member or a veteran, and then extension 19881. And there is somebody manning that phone 24-7 who is on that other end to assist you. And then I would like to leave your audience with a prescription. I have written this prescription to thousands of patients over the course of my career. And I tell patients with this, this medication has no bad side effects. This medication has no drug-to-drug interactions. And you can't overdose on it. Proverbs 17.22 says, A merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the boat. And when I was depressed, I had a broken spirit. So one of the antidotes is laughter. So each and every day, I want you to take a healthy dose of laughter. So laugh and laugh and laugh. It's good medicine. It absolutely is. And you're speaking to my heart because I am all about getting people off the hamster wheel of life and having more fun and more adventures in life. And you're absolutely right. It's the laughter component. Because I always say, if you're not having fun, you're doing it wrong. Like there has to be something that 
if it's not bringing you joy, just stop doing it. Like really stop doing it. And let's see how we can figure out to bring you even more joy. One final question, Skip. This is the Get Shit Done podcast. So just wondering how you're getting shit done in your life this week. I'm trying to get rid of distractions. I am trying to keep the main thing, the main thing, and trying to eliminate some of the clutter to get rid of distractions. That's key. Yeah, there's a lot of things in this world that distract us. The number one thing being technology (laughs) sometimes. It is a love-hate relationship, as I always say for me. Well, Skip, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your story with the listening audience. I know this is going to be one of those podcasts that people are going to want to listen and share over and over So I really appreciate the time you took to be here with us today. Thank you, Julie. It's been my pleasure. Uh, You are so welcome. Well, this is Julie Jones signing off for another week of the Get Shit Done podcast. As always, I greatly appreciate you listening in. And please, 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 please share this episode, especially because there is somebody out there that could be at that point where they are praying. I always believe that there are people out there praying for an answer, and this could be the answer that they are looking for. And as always, be sure to have a productive get shit done kind of week. I look forward to talking with you again soon. Time is our most valuable asset, and I certainly do appreciate yours. Thank you so much for listening to the Get Shit Done podcast with me, Julie Jones. If this episode was helpful for you, please subscribe and give me a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast. This goes a long way in helping others to find the show too. Are you ready? I mean, really ready to make the next step towards living your best life now? Then contact me at juliejones.biz to schedule your call with me. You can also find additional information on contacting me in the show notes. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode of the Get Shit Done podcast. In the meantime, be sure to live your life with purpose and passion.